Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today, we have a special episode because it's a rebroadcast of an episode from another podcast called Haptics Club. Haptics Club is created and hosted by my friend Eric Vizzoli, and it's totally focused on haptics. I think it's the only podcast doing that. So if haptics is of interest to you, I highly suggest you subscribe to Haptics Club. Eric invited me on to talk about a piece I had written called The Logic of the Tactile Internet. And he also invited David Parisi on, who's a media historian, and also appeared on this podcast in an early episode. Because David always contributes a lot to these types of philosophical conversations. The piece was divided into three sections. The first one is called Cartographic Collapse, which refers to the fact that when you can reach through the internet and change things at a distance in the physical world, then the very idea of distance and perhaps even the purpose of maps starts to change. The second one is called haptic coercion. If you have an interface that can exert forces on your body, which is what haptic interfaces do, then of course you're opening up the opportunity for remote actors to affect your body. And that could result in physical coercion across the internet. The third topic is sensory abundance. A significant portion of human motivation might be able to be explained as chasing after sensory experiences. And if those sensory experiences become abundant and easy to have, perhaps a lot less expensive and scarce, then the types of things that humans are motivated by might start to even change. So here we go. The logic of the tactile internet. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. We are here with a special event of the Haptics Club, um, this time in video. And we have here with me Dave Birbaum, former Immersion Corporation, uh, spent a lifetime there, I think, and David Parisi, um, professor at College of Charleston and a prominent media scientist in the field of haptics media. Um, this is a special issue because uh, our uh, let's say our speaker can see each other. So we are expecting a bit more a dynamic discussion. And uh, I will uh, start, the, um, start the podcast uh, with, uh, I, I will, li will leave our uh, speaker to introduce themselves. So David, please uh, spend a couple of minutes to introduce yourself. And then we'll leave the field to David Parisi to go. Sure. So, hey, I'm Dave. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Eric, for inviting me on the podcast. It's kind of exciting to be doing something uh, visual and a little bit like more uh, higher bandwidth, which we're going to talk about later as Haptics goes higher bandwidth as well. Uh, it's about 8 a.m. over here, so I have my coffee. You may see a dog walking around behind me. Hopefully he'll be he'll remain relaxed. Um, yeah, and I uh, spent about uh, 14 years, actually a little more than that in haptics in general, but about 14 years at a company called Immersion, which is um, a very prominent company in the field of haptic technology, uh, doing R&D, prototyping, UX, product, uh, design, evangelism, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, yeah, happy to be here. Hi, uh, David Parisi. I'm uh, an associate professor in emerging media at the College of Charleston. I've been uh, researching haptics for, oh God, probably around 20-ish years now, not quite that. I uh, wrote a book uh, that came out in 2018 called Archaeology of Touch that tried to sort of craft a history of the field. And I've been uh, talking to Dave about this stuff for what, I think we met for the first time, uh, maybe 2016. Something um, like that. You were You were writing the book. Yeah, uh, definitely still in progress, which was was in progress for a long time. Um, and I always find our conversation just so illuminating and get like a different window onto the field than I got doing my historical and archival research. So I'm really excited for this conversation today. Fantastic. Uh, I, I like this conversation today because uh, Dave is out of immersion, so he can sh maybe share. Uh, something more. Let's say there is no more com <laughs> company. Uh, let's say company branding defense. I. That, 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 that I think it would be liberating. So um, this is the re-record of the Haptics Club 14 because uh, we had some issues in Twitter. Um, uh, we wanted to dedicate 10-15 minutes to Dave's expertise here. Uh, 
Um, and what I found, uh, I already had some discussion with uh, Dave Pierman, um, I found fascinating that there is, uh, I think, a lot of research that is going on within immersion that has never been shown to anyone and maybe a lot of user experience research and interface design research. And it goes into the documentation issues of haptics, but that's, that's, that's another topic. It's really, can you share us free haptics implementation or experiences that you found remarkable uh, while you worked in your career at Immersion? Sure, yeah. So um, I was attracted to haptics originally because I was at a summer program in uh, music technology and haptic in uh, musical instrument design. And there was a professor there named Bill Verplank, who is a very prominent uh, person who invented the the term interaction design, actually. So he was one of the first people to kind of combine what we now call design thinking with technology development. And he was a haptics person and he was really um, passionate about that space. He had worked on some really advanced uh, interfaces at Interval Research. Part of that program was he taught us how to build a haptic interface out of an old hard drive motor. And um, at that time, I was I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was kind of realizing that music was probably not going to be a career for me. And it was really in that single moment of feeling of fake haptic sensation, like something that you can touch that wasn't really there, um, that everything clicked for me. And I was like, I could be really interested in this for a long time. This is going to change the entire world. It changes the rules of how we think about interacting with the world. Um, and that's a very fertile ground for, you know, all kinds of things like um, doing things, something that's fun, doing something that's lucrative. So I'm just going to pursue this. Um, and uh, I kind of... Um, cold called immersion and uh, forced my forced them to give me an interview. Not forced. I kept calling them. Uh, eventually, they called me back and uh, kind of worked there for a long, long time in a lot of different fields. And um, uh, the cool thing about immersion is because it's a, a haptics company, um, it, it's, it's de dealing with this single technology, but that technology applies to so many different areas and verticals that I had the privilege to work on many different things, social interaction, automotive, medical, um, wearables, even music at times, gaming. And so um, it was just really great to kind of learn about all those different industries. Uh, I was always interested mostly in the social aspect uh, because um, I saw haptics as a means of allowing people to interact in a natural way through the internet. And um, that's just really inspiring to me. So I often tried to steer my work in that direction. Uh, one, one thing that we did um, is we created a real-time gesture interface for haptic interaction on a mobile touchscreen. So you could move your finger on the touchscreen. The other person moves their finger on their side. When the fingers cross, you feel a, a nuanced kind of tactile texture. And um, we did, you know, it's a very basic tactile interaction. It's nothing like shaking a hand or giving a high five, but we did user research that really showed that people perceived it to be touching another person. Just like I'm seeing you, I'm not seeing a picture of you on this video. People perceived it to be touching the other person's finger, not touching the touch screen and having a haptic effect play. So that was like a big, like, wow moment. We can do a lot with social haptics. Uh, then stickers, uh, started to become like a thing uh, in social media. So we created haptic stickers, haptic gifts. We tried to find ways of integrating haptics into messaging in general and human interaction. Um, and so I, I did that for many years and we can talk more about that. Um, and, you know, that eventually evolved as we moved into the era of XR with AR and VR. Um, and um, the second project I'll just mention is um, this, this haptic wristband type of thing that, um, and, and ring and wristband. So basically haptic wearables for AR. Uh, and in the 5G era, you have wide bandwidth available all the time. Uh, you have devices that now have very good battery life and they're able to interact uh, wirelessly with sort of, you know, through 5G and LoRa and all these new protocols. You can have devices that are communicating with the cloud and the internet on your body in new ways. Um, and especially with the advance in uh, actuators, you could have devices that change temperature, change shape, and so on and so forth. And so you're sort of in this new era of interaction with haptics, uh, just thanks to kind of the convergence of 5G and a few of the newer haptic technologies uh, and AI, of course. And so, uh, you know, at Immersion, we identified that as an opportunity and we did some innovation there. We wound up building a very cool device that was a ring that could kind of flutter and move on your fingertip. 
and it was a very organic sensation. So um, it felt to us like kind of like smooth liquid as it moved. It's hard to explain without feeling it, but it reminded us of that. And we were like, why don't we make a painting app to really match the interaction with the sensation and see, you know, how convincing that is. So we made a painting app with that. And then we also made some user other interactions to kind of play with AR conventions. Um, and then we also made a, a design. We didn't build the wristband, but we made a design for a wristband that was also able to squeeze um, and also had temperature feedback. Um, just to give you an example of how haptics can be um, can create interesting sensations that you wouldn't expect. Um, we didn't really think about it as a hugging interface, but we realized that when you squeeze the wrist gently and add warmth, people who had never thought of this before, they just blurt out, oh my gosh, it feels like a warm hug on my wrist. Like there's something very emotional and, and gentle and human about that. So it just shows you like, one of the things that I think haptics is going to do really, really well and next, and people aren't really studying it that much. It's not time yet. It's we're just moving into this era is this multimodality. When you have multiple haptic modes that are very, very tightly integrated and you have design tools that can synchronize them, then you open up these new worlds for social haptic interaction. Um, thank, thanks, Dave. So it's fantastic. Thanks a lot. It's, it's, uh, uh, I see that there is this social aspect that is uh, like a leitmotiv of your, of your career uh, in haptics, or at least the things that you remember most. Um, I love the haptics emoticon. Uh, I already have the discussion why this is not a thing yet. Uh, it's, it's so basic, like that's a thing so basic that should work and uh, we don't know yet. I mean, a Apple is doing it in some way with their own animations on the iPhones. So uh, indication that it, that it could work. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 lo I love that really because that uh, the social aspect, uh, I think it could, could be big. Um, as a function of uh, how fast it's the ecosystem and not to kill each other with the different implementations, but that's another discussion. Um, but yeah, I'm super fan of that. And I'm, I'm in the future, they will find a place somewhere. We don't yet know where and how, but I believe that, that they would do. So uh, let's then uh, uh, dive into this future. Let's uh, imagine, let's make an, a mental exercise that uh, 5G works, which doesn't really right now. So we have infinite band, like the, the promise of infinite band by, uh, in wireless, that is not really the case, but let's say that this works. We right. have low latency um, connection with uh, uh, servers, run simulations in real time, whatever, or with other, another person on the other side of the globe. And we have these uh, advanced haptics interfaces that maybe Meta is showing us how they are building them because probably they are the most advanced at building these things. Um, that, that allow us to have this kind of um, organic organic interaction, wideband, and uh, um, that give us this multimodality, as you mentioned, that generates uh, can generate emotion and contact uh, in far away. Let's say, okay, we are there. It's not to be a ready player one, but you really about let's talk about the haptics. Um, I you spent some time thinking about this the impact on this on, on these activities. And uh, this wants to be an open discussion between uh, Dave and David about uh, uh, back and forth over the thought of uh, Dave that I invite you to share and uh, feedback and comment from Dave Parisi to understand what are the implications for uh, society and for uh, technology uh, if this really is going to happen. Make sense? Yeah, for so, sure. Uh, Dave, I let you share uh, your first thought. You can dive it and share it. and. David Parisi, jump in when you feel that there is something that uh, tickles your curiosity. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. That's that's a really interesting topic for me. Um, you know, the way I think about it is, so haptics changes the rules. Like we have an, an association pretty much as humans. There are cultural uh, dependencies, but pretty much humans believe that the sense of touch is correlated with some form of epistemology. Like it's how you determine what is most real, right? David, is, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's um, definitely uh, definitely a cultural, um, you know, cultural negotiation on that front. And we go through sort of waves uh, where we develop evidentiary standards mm -hmm. around, you know, what counts as what counts as real, what counts as proof. Um, I mean, if, if you don't mind the quick digression, I mean, I think yeah. it's it's fair to say that 
in the like modern history of science, uh, visual proofs started to matter way more than actual material proofs, right? And mm -hmm. I think that that's sort of the grounding of like, if you look at like post-enlightenment um, science is really this turn toward visuality and away from, you know, embodied materiality. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's part of what's at play here, right? Is uh, this question of like, can, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to sort of anticipate too much what you're going to say, but, but can this, can this technology like pivot us back to that sort of those sort of earlier modes, epistemological modes? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I don't know if they can. Well, no, but that's the thing is, so there's kind of two ways of looking at this. One is theoretical, like purely theoretical, and it's really just a thought experiment. It's like, okay, um, in a world where we have perfect haptics, um, what does that mean for how we interpret reality? But then there's another thing, which is what does perfect haptics mean? And is that even like a, a thing or are we just using the words perfect haptics to just mean reality is broken? So it's almost like you could get into like a circular argument about whether we're even talking about anything that's inevitable. Um, like for example, um, at immersion, we would make these haptic demos um, and then another part of my role was I would go out and talk about haptics and the vision and um, the vision, you know, Ready Player One was was something that was just like this touchstone. Everybody knew it. And so it was easy to just reference it. Well, in Ready Player One, what does he do? He puts on a suit and he's in a, he's like trapped in a container and then it cuts to like a computer animated world where he could do anything and feel anything. And there's no boundary between there's no limit. And um it's an easy thought experiment to play with, but is that possible? Like, is that even realistic? Like, I, I'm no, I, I don't have, uh, I don't have like a lot of um, background in neuroscience or anything like that. But I understand that you know, um, direct neural stimulation. There's even limits to that, like what you can feel and the realities that you can produce without actually moving your body in the way that um, uh, uh, freely. Is that you know there are there there are possibly limits there. It it, it is possible that like the matrix uh, vision of lying in a bed and having any sensation, any experience, perfectly like reality, is absolutely impossible. Like from a physical standpoint, and so but we our minds go there, right? So so that's where this conversation started. It was just like okay, our minds go there. Like we assume perfect haptics means reality is perfectly malleable. Then what? Um, and so, yeah, I was playing with these ideas. I call that like the logic of the tactile internet. Basically, the tactile internet is this this world where you have perfect haptics or very high bandwidth haptics anyway, maybe not perfect, but very high bandwidth. Um, they're cheap, they're, it's, it's uh, ubiquitous, it's embedded in all the devices all around you, your clothing and so on, and you have always on wireless connection, and it's very, very high bandwidth and perfectly reliable. Um, what, what, what new logic about how people will use those systems starts to starts to take uh, starts to form, um, and so the 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 first one is I call cartographic collapse. Actually, we were talking about this at Smart Haptics last week, Eric. Um, we we're talking about because you were bringing up the idea that like in the metaverse, the the model of uh, value could be like real estate, like virtual real estate, and uh, we we're talking playing with that concept, and um, that's related to this. So so. Um, some of the other guys were saying, well, you know, um, really what would matter is whether I could like access that virtual world. It's not that it's scarce, it's that like maybe I can't get there or I can't use it. That's kind of related to this idea that I've been playing with, which is that like latency matters in the tactile, in the logic of the tactile internet a lot more than geography. So it doesn't really matter how close you are to something in physical space. If you can affect it with your gestures, if what you, how you move, can make physical change in a remote sp place <clears throat> and assuming that physical change is immediate and assuming that you have a perfect uh, haptic experience of doing it, then that that is close to you in some very real and human way. Um, and if you are, if, if your next door neighbor, uh, you know, is 30 feet away from you, but you can't access that space through the tactile internet, that is in a very real way far away from you. Um, and so it's just like an interest, I guess, I don't know how useful it is, but it's just kind of interesting experiment and thought experiment to think like, hmm, maybe we assume that, um, we, there's an assumption embedded in the idea of a map that it has to be spatial. What, what maps really tell you is how far away things are to you in terms of your ability to affect them, 
to be there, quote unquote, and to move yourself there and to change things there, uh, to meet people there. That's what it's actually telling you. And you look at this spatial map and you're like, okay, there's there's traffic here or this thing's many, many miles away. And so it starts to, has a sensory consequence, I guess. Um, and if those sensory yeah. consequences go away, then we're, I mean, we're left it's the same concept for uh, the map of the metro, that they are absolutely far away from the geographical representation where stations are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, they are basically just the, uh, uh, the because you might assume that it's a single straight line, they are not, and it's represented for usability and understanding is not represented for uh, to being a representation of distances. It's just about the relationship between the points. So I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm sort of thinking here of um, there is a there is a an, an artwork by um, Stellark maybe mm -hmm. 20 plus years ago um, called the Ping Body where he had this sort of um, I can't remember if it was like a robot sort of exoskeleton that he had built um, and basically the movements if I'm remembering the exhibition right the movements of the skeleton were determined by um, pinging different geographical locations and seeing like how fast the, the ping came back and they would enact basically like the latency of the internet uh, globally with this, you know, with this, this sculpture that I think, again, I think it was an exo, like a robot exoskeleton that, that he had built and was encased in. Um, and it was a really cool way to visualize exactly that thing, right? And visualize it for, for the viewers, but also physicalize it for him, right? Because he's encased in this thing, right? So I think it's, uh, you know, kind of an early, and, and I'm, I'm sure those ping speeds must have been a lot slower in like whatever, whenever this was, I think like early 2000s or late 90s, um, you know, than they would be now. So, yeah, just something that your your example here brought to mind that I, I didn't think about the first time when I when I read the, um, you know, your your write up and uh, we had this conversation uh, earlier. But definitely, that's an unbelievably relevant. I'm going to check that out. That's like exactly what I'm talking about. That's so cool. Yeah, nothing Ooh. new under the sun. You're agreeing. I don't. I wasn't expecting. Oh, we're not supposed to agree. Okay. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, I, I have. A, this is a landmark moment. That's I not can, what I I'm doing. <laughs> I can advertise this shit out. <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing that I wanted to, however, point out on your thought is that it works if it is in a multisensory environment where it makes sense for the user. And uh, with the only things that could, um, I think. Uh, hinder the reality of that is that the expectations that you would have a mixed reality, not complete virtual reality, and then it would need to be blend to blend nicely into the real world. That's an interesting point. Yeah, and I think that's challenging because uh, you have a real object that has infinite stiffness, let's say super hard objects, and haptics will have a physically that challenge. The idea is that I think. That would be a lot of researches around there on how to make things blend nicely between reality and, and virtual. But this was just a, a thought that, uh, let's say, if I would identify a challenge, if it's infinite, uh, super low latency, it would be that one, how to blend things to make them feel real. I mean, so the thing that the thing that I would kind of want to layer, I mean, I, I, I appreciate this thought experiment and I've I've tried to do it a little bit in my own work at times. Um, and I think the thing that I would layer onto this, just I don't want to derail the thought experiment, but I do want to add this other dimension onto it because I think it's it's usually couched in terms of um, in terms of a technological projection, right? Like a projection of you know a technology that actually uh, meets our expectations that uh, that come from cinema, which I think is really interesting. So you mentioned Ready Player One. You mentioned The Matrix. I, I think about Surrogates is another film that features like feed, not a great film, but does feature that feedback from a from a remotely operated avatar that's supposed to be a, a tactile feedback. And at one point, Bruce Willis gets a robot that doesn't have touch feedback. It's like a low end model that he has to project his body into and it doesn't work as well. Um, avatar, Lawnmower Man, right? So we actually have this whole history of cinematic depictions of something like a perfect haptics that I think conditions us to think that it's possible, right? Like right. in those those um, those examples sort of aggregate in our collective and our individual consciousness, right? Yeah. Um, to 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 get us to think that like this would work 
seamlessly. And I think that is just sort of as a media scholar and historian or whatever, I would say that there's a cinematic, there's something about cinema that erases how hard it would be to make that happen because cinema is a visual medium, right? Um, we don't have to physicalize that fantasy. It's a very seamless, it's a very clean yeah. visual fantasy. You're saying exactly, I was trying to express what you're saying. You're saying it much better than I do. Like it's an assumption that that this theory of the logic of the tactile internet even has validity in the real world. Like it could just be uh, a, a thought experiment that that takes us really much nowhere. It doesn't teach us anything about how things will turn out because that's not how how the technology will will evolve. Um, but but having said that, the, it's more than just, I think, a cinematic assumption, just because like thinking about your work, like with electrification, there was also this assumption, right? Electrification was maybe even before cinema, but there was still this assumption that somehow electricity was going to liberate us from like uh, being constrained in our sense senses, right? Like you were, you could take a bath on electricity. You could feel things electrically that were virtual in some sense, although they didn't use that word. It was a, like a technology that 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 triggered haptic sensation. It was controllable, and then people extrapolated out and said, "Well, if I can control the sense of touch in this small way, then as we progress, I'll just be able to control it perfectly. We'll cover more and more and more of it." Yeah, and and I would I would definitely I wouldn't say it I wouldn't say it originates in cinema. I just think that the cinematic representation has a way of like making it seem really clean. Mm -hmm. When all these technologies, the thing that always strikes me and why why I go back to this, you know, this this other aspect of that fantasy of perfect haptics is that people want to wear this stuff and that people want to, you know, want to be immersed in this stuff and I think that it's really easy to forget um, and something that you know, people who work on haptics are more attuned to this than anyone else is, mm -hmm. but they're also more favorably inclined to the the enclosure. Uh, it's really easy to forget, like when you see this technology working so seamlessly on the screen, that it's meaty at the end of the day, right? I'm thinking about that a lot um, for a piece I'm working on on haptic gloves right now. Uh, it the thought of putting on like cumbersome gloves and having it be hard to take them off. As someone who's just a really tactile person and always fidgeting with my hands, kind of gives me like a low level anxiety, right? Like of not being able to like scratch my face because I have this this glove on, right? It might be it might be okay for like a 15 minute work session, but I'm trying to picture like, you know, a two hour gaming session with the haptic gloves on and like not, you know, it would have to be this. And I think this is the this is the you know, Facebook slash meta uh vision is of a total enclosure, right? Like of a, of a scenario where you're not having to, I mean, just in, in this one specific area, because right now there are all these reasons to have to exit that, that reality that keep us from um, being disposed toward that total immersion, right? Like we always want to be able to duck, duck in and duck out. And I think what Meta is going for is a total enclosure model where there's no reason to duck out. Right. Uh, They're like, people don't doom scroll long enough. Now we have to add more sensory layers <laughs> to continue the doom scrolling. Yeah, you I can mean, uh, yeah. scroll while you're playing a video game <laughs> with the headset on. Right now, like, I'll doom scroll while I'm gaming, but it's console and phone, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, wa I want to build on that, David, because I think there's two sides in meta. And I, I realized it by chatting with Smart Haptics with Nicholas. Um, there is this, like, of full immersion, like, like a cinematically inspired, that is pretty much the, the same things as haptics, right? This is basically their, what they're going for. They're going for the maximum enclosure, super high fidelity, question mark about up market application, but that's not the point, right? It's still an R&D exercise today. Uh, then there's the second one that I think is a really smart one, which is fundamentally the wrist applied systems about having perfect hand interactions. And uh, for the XR haptics book that we are writing with folks of HIF, we spent time to think about that because it, we are in our, we, are, we have businesses, we need to build this kind of stuff. We, we take one hour a week to think about uh, you know, impacts. And more and more I think about that, more and more I realize that probably the interaction framework, haptics interaction framework will be self-referenced so it would be you touch your own body with projected 
uh, informations or you touching the reality with projected information that are generated digitally and feel so basically leveraging what exists to create a really good haptics fit sensation of at least interaction framework with reality, which mimics uh, everywhere what you can do with telephones and stuff, plus an information layer, mm-hmm. which is, is around your wrist and leveraging multisensoriality as uh, they was mentioning before in a smart way to generate something that is probably better than what we have today with phones, but where will be a lot of research around how can we create a good multisensory, um, let's say, experiences that are satisfactory, maybe immersive to a certain point with our blending the real world touch with, uh, with, with virtual haptics. So yeah. virtual sensation, because then you meet the expectation of the user, which is hands-free. I don't want gloves. I hate them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I guess what I'm thinking about while you say that is, so it's an assumption that um, haptics has to be quote unquote perfect um, for some of the rules of the logic of the tactile internet to, to, to become relevant, right? Like, you could have like we'll talk about haptic coercion in a minute, but like you could have, it's just a it's just a wristband, um, but because it's able to influence the motion of your hand, um, you can have haptic coercion take place in that world. It doesn't have to be a Ready Player One, perfect immersive environment in order for some of these consequences to uh, have have an effect. I mean, I see a little bit the arc of virtual reality that started in 2012, let's say, is this dream about being fully immersed. Right now, the only things that matter is augmented reality or mixed reality. So mixing it with the real world, right? So people realize how much constraining it is being in another place with the physical world outside you. And you can, you have this switch between the real and, and, and digital. And they say, yes, but what, why, do, why do I need to choose? Why, why can't I have both together? And there is this big push for a... Uh, had uh, like the connected glasses with the augmented reality. I mean, I would expect that haptics it's, would go in a similar direction. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the glove thing, I mean, look, one of the things we used at Immersion, the, um, I guess, design criteria that we would sometimes use is we would say, okay, in R&D, we're going to make something that's obviously not practical from a market perspective, but you kind of cover as much... Um, of the haptic experience as possible with um, programmability, addressability, and um, you find good experiences and and um, you know value. You find end user value within that, and then maybe that's a sub domain of the of the total capabilities of the device, and then that's what you productize. So I mean, from what I w- what I would assume Meta is doing is they're just like, look, we have infinite money, we have this R and D team, we're going to make, we're going to push the boundaries of perfect haptics for the hand uh, and maybe wrist. I don't know how far down the wrist it, it extends, but we're just going to push that to its absolute limit and then take pieces of it and productize it into wearables and, and so on and so forth. Uh, once we can, we, we have that playground to play on, we'll, we'll kind of um, pare down, you know, what the, to pare it down to something practical. Yeah, I think it could be a good strategy. I think it, 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 it's cool. You were talking about haptics coercion, right? So yes. can you sh- share a bit about that? And let's uh, let's let's dive into a more probably divisive argument here. Yeah, sure. So, um, and it's uh, obviously uh, not by accident that we're talking about meta at the same time here. So uh, haptic coercion is uh, kind of, this concept is has two pieces to it. Uh, one of them is a little bit more, surreptitious and like uh, implied, and the other one is literal. So the type of haptic coercion that's possible today um, is just the it's just a an incremental improvement on on marketing that um, marketing techniques we already know. We already know how to, how to influence people's behavior with marketing visually and you know with with other sensations and um, in in certain scenarios. Now we have haptics. Haptics is more. Um, it's harder to ignore. It touches your brain in a different place. Um, it's associated with like instinct and emotion very closely. And so what we found when we did brain studies at immersion was we were able to very efficiently imprint memories into people's brains by just synchronizing a haptic effect with a visual event. They're watching a video on their phone 
and uh, the video has certain haptic elements. They could just be explosions, but they could be even just, uh, you know, a car driving. You can feel the shift of the gears. You can feel the the tires on the road. Um, and we would do these studies, um, both uh, EEG studies and also just um, studies uh, self-reporting and and so on. And we found that people were more likely to remember marketing messages that had haptic component. Now, that's not like earth shattering or dangerous or anything, but it's something to think about. Like it's a very, very powerful tool and and marketers don't know really how to use it yet. And so we have seen nothing yet. Like, like haptic marketing is going to be extremely effective. Um, just last week, uh, Mar- Margot Rakawa, who's a haptics researcher, a marketing haptics researcher, she presented some research about um, the Amazon app. Now, when you put a item in your cart, it just plays a haptic effect. Just a bzz, that's it. Um, and you know, we don't have any visibility into that decision, but it's amazing that um, that 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 exists because it does feel kind of nice to see when it, you get a little haptic reward for putting an item in your cart. Um, you could just say it's confirmation, but I would strongly suspect that it's more than that. I would strongly suspect that some research teams discovered that people were more likely to add items to their cart or to complete purchases with that little change. And so it's just something to be aware of um, that like that's coming and it can be used responsibly and it can be used irresponsibly. I'm building on that. I mean, I have access to that data because I'm part of the research and it's double digit increase of conversion. It's like... I cannot tell you because otherwise we don't publish, but it's double digit and yeah. it's also double digit increase of the amount of money they spend. There you go. So you have a, you have a twofold effect, which is one, it's much higher uh, rates that they check out when it is in the cart because it's more memorable. It's like they, che- they, they pass a wall. And the second part is that they, are, they uh, spend more money in the app just through haptics. And that's crazy. That is that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. Just crazy. It's so crazy when you say double digits, and it's so, it's so simple to implement, and you get this double digit lift. I mean, I'm a huge capitalist, so do whatever you want. But it starts to like the word unfair. Unfair starts to like bubble up in my mind. Like, is that really fair? Like, like people are just trying to get their products, and they're trying to to like get things that they need online, and and they're probably buying stuff because of this haptic effect that they don't need to buy and they're spending money in ways that they didn't intend. And so I just, I don't know. I don't know that I love that. Well, so, I mean, I think that's the, that's the double-edged sword of, um, and I, I didn't kind of expect that we would, that we would hit it so perfectly, but I think this example crystallizes like my, like my big picture concern around, um, around the technology, right? Like, as you both know, I'm probably like, one of the more skeptical people in the room with all this stuff in terms of like the prospects for success, the prospects for implementation. Um, I think that's what I've tried to show with my research um, historically is that there's been a lot of hope in the past. Um, A lot of that hope has gotten dashed and stuff that looked very promising in the moment hasn't come to fruition. Um, And my, you know, part of the reason that I'm not necessarily an enthusiast for it coming to fruition is applications like this, right? So, if it does, if it does succeed, what does that implementation look like? It's not this abstract implementation of, you know, perfect haptics for some like uh, humanistic, um, benevolent intent, right? It has to get filtered through this process of, you know, what Shushana Zuboff talks about as surveillance capitalism. Um, it has to get to get implemented in uh, according to that logic. I mean, Dave, you, you sort of alluded to like the the concern with uh, Meta being at the root of this and. You know, that's part of, um, you know, part of the reason that if I ever get optimistic for the technology succeeding, I'm immediately concerned about the technology succeeding. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that's been really uh, eye opening to me, both in doing archival research, but then in the last few years, talking to people within the field is that there does seem to be this what I think is a very genuine, like humanistic intent behind a lot of haptics researchers like both on the academic side and on the industry side, where there's a there's a, I think a genuine um, hope that this technology will improve like the condition of humanity, right? Like whatever that means for yeah. for, for, for individual people uh, working on that field, it's not it's not this sort of like crudely capitalistic motivation. 
Um, I think Dave, you and I have said like, if you want to make, if your immediate short-term goal is to make money, um, this is maybe not the best way to do it. Right. right? Like, um, yeah. In, yeah. In the near term. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll anyway, that's just sort of the, the. I think I think it gets at really nicely like what um, the my concern is like if the technology succeeds, what do conditions of success look like, and what does successful implementation look like? Yeah, it's. Uh, I have my thoughts on this. It's. I think it will be brutal. Because the things that drives is money. It's the only things that drive things is money. Um, so yeah. uh, the problem, the things is, is held back by, you know, what it has back is ecosystem non-integration, things that doesn't work. So investment ROI is not measurable, let's say. But as soon as that is, let's say, passed, will be, is about usages. Usages will be driven by money implementation or anything that can be turned in money. But one thing that I always when I think about this, I always it comes up is that when you are using your mobile phone, that for the foreseeable future you will, uh, like about 100% of the time you have it in your hands, right? And no one, I think 10, less than 10%, actually listen to the sounds to their phone. Mm-hmm. With basically no one. You listen to music, but you don't want to listen to the game design or, or, or the clicks of your phone. You hate it. Mm-hmm. But how much money goes into that? How much effort goes into that that is basically a 10% channel of communication with the user that is somewhat unreliable, okay? Mm. Haptics would be 100% channel of communication with your user. So that will be always on because you will always have in your hands. If the effect is almost as comparable as audio, there is an incredible amount of influence just to be discovered here. Mm-hmm. And would be reliable in the hands of whoever wants to use that. Yeah. So I think it's scary. Yeah. Well, wait, so let's get even scarier. So then the second the second component of haptic coercion. Okay. So we're talking about avatars and gloves. So, um, you know, one of the things about uh, early haptic interfaces back in like the 50s and 60s, like they tried to build these exoskeletons and those projects, I remember vaguely, probably David knows them much better than I do, but I remember vaguely that one of the projects failed because, you know, if you have an exoskeleton that is strong enough to pick up heavy objects, it can also rip your arm off and you have to make really, really sure that uh, it's not going to do that by accident, right? So it so inherently when you provide um, high bandwidth, high force haptics to people, um, there it's a two-way street. That's a programmable channel that can then feed back and control that person's body. And maybe you want that uh, and maybe you don't. And so giving permission to another person or company or government in order to control haptic interfaces um, is a very serious matter. So it's like, well, that seems like really far off. Well, actually it's here today because if you think about um, our uh, develop or like march towards autonomous driving, okay, autonomous drive, autonomous cars have to be safe. They can't be running around and like running over people. Um, and so I don't know how autonomous, uh, you know, uh, computer vision works in, in autonomous cars. Uh, I'm assuming that one of the things that they do is make sure that the car cannot drive onto a sidewalk. Okay, like you can identify a sidewalk and you can say that's just you're not allowed to drive on sidewalks. That's fine. That's good. We don't want cars driving on sidewalks. The reality is, though, that human drivers today, when they drive their cars, they can drive on sidewalks. They just choose not to. They have the ultimate freedom to like move that machine around wherever they want. Um, but there are things that prevent them from from hurting people, like laws and and you know a sense of morals and ethics and and compassion and empathy and so on and so forth. There's all these things that we use to kind of trust people not to do that. We can't do that with autonomous driving, so we have to just build it in. It's a hard-coded thing, no sidewalks. Okay, so then um, what's next after that? No red lights, okay. Then what's next after that? Well, you know, the environment is in in a really poor shape and you've driven enough, eh, you probably shouldn't be driving so far. We're, we're gonna turn off your car. Or uh, you should probably be driving fewer days per week and so on. And so this is actually haptic coercion because it's actually it's preventing your body from from using this machine ultimately to move around freely. Um, and so that's a car, so that's a giant steel pod that you're in and it, it goes long distances. Now think about that technology shrinking incrementally towards things that you interact with uh, manually or you wear it. And again, you can ha- you, you will have these rules built in. Should I be able to quote unquote like 
physically assault another person with my haptic glove in virtual reality? Probably not. Um, will somebody eventually like feel so frustrated that they get to like fisticuffs and they want to like fight somebody else and all of a sudden their haptic gloves just like freeze them and stop? You know, this is haptic coercion. And um, just like David was saying, you know, the 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 motivation for it building in these constraints can be ultimately something that is motivated by goodness. Um, but but once you have the technology available, it will be used for all kinds of reasons and for sure it will be used for nefarious purposes in addition to good purposes. Um, and so that's something that, again, it's it's concerning. David, I'm very curious what you say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think the challenge, just like the challenge, I mean, I'm glad you brought up self-driving cars. I think the challenge is um, one that has seemed for me since I started working on this stuff, it seemed very um, it seemed very abstract, right? Like it seemed like a, a challenge that is we have to keep our eye on, we have to be worried about, but it, the, the technology isn't at a place where the danger seems imminent enough to like to, to be able to study it in the real world, like to be able to look at what um, these instances of you know, the violation of someone's autonomy um, through a haptic device look like. There's some exceptions to that, right? Um, very famously like um, hacking Bluetooth um, controlled sex toys a few years ago, right? Um, very, you know, obviously like a very intimate technology, um, something that you don't want an unauthorized person taking control over. Um, so you do have you, you do have exceptions to that. But I think that what that illustrates is, you know, the the very real regulatory challenge that we will face once, you know, once or if um, the technology gets to a point where there's sort of a, a, a growing like cultural concern or growing need to regulate this technology. And then whose hands does that fall into, right? Uh, do we just sort of do what we're doing now with social media, which is most of the time leave it to like the discretion of the companies to do, um, to handle their own regulation and do it really poorly? I mean, that's one of the things that's going on in the background here, right? Of the, um, you know, of Facebook's pivot to meta is Facebook basically trying to like draw attention away from um, its, you know, essentially um, giant cluster uh, around its, you know, around its privacy protection, around the way that it monetizes users' content, um, and so, you know, do we, if if uh, Facebook is the architecture or the infrastructure of this uh, of this new environment, um, do we trust them to put those uh, to put those regulations in place, or do we, you know, do we turn to the government to do that? And how much more capable is the government of doing that than? Um, you know, than uh, an individual corporation. Uh, and I think that's, yeah, I mean, it gets to the sort of heart of your concern. I think it's the same set of issues around self-driving cars. I mean, if history repeats itself, probably it will be a cultural thing in a function of the country you are in. So probably the, the guys who regulate are the European, the guys who cracks down are the Chinese, and the US will drag the feet till it's inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, but it, it also will be the, comp the country that will make more money. That's, that's probably yeah. it's the case. So yeah, perhaps so. I mean, I, I I don't I don't know that regulation is more attractive to me than than uh, corporate discretion. It's, it's, the both of those has. I don't I don't I don't see why regulation would necessarily work better than corporate discretion. I mean, it's really just a monopoly on those decisions as opposed to uh, as opposed to not so. You know, well, I mean, I we can. I, I don't want to. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. But if you look at what's, I mean, if you look at what's happened with Facebook, um, they've uh, they've realized that they are incapable of successfully regulating their own platform. I mean, they have almost um, yeah. almost begged Congress to regulate them because they can't regulate themselves. Every step that they take toward moderating content seems to backfire. Um, they seem to not be able to make good decisions either for the company. Or for you know our democracy, which is you know I think it's pretty safe to say has been damaged by Facebook's like unwillingness to uh, moderate content. So I think you have this you have this real challenge where the tech companies have shown themselves to be incapable of successfully uh, moderating their own content, of successfully like governing themselves. So 
what does that look like? I think the danger gets even more imminent when we're talking about techno a technology that can like rip your arm off, right? I mean, I think that was a really good example for you to to lead with because all of a sudden it becomes this question, like once you cross that barrier from the virtual world into the physical world, now we're talking about like actual questions of just like with self-driving cars, actual questions of liability for damages. Um, and there you actually can't avoid a regulatory framework, right? I mean, it's impossible to get around a regulatory framework that is ultimately like, you know, governed by a state actor, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly what happened with self-driving. I mean, first Tesla's, People were sleeping and they went crashing against, uh, you know, a, a, a truck. And and right now you have to put your hands on it. Otherwise, it doesn't allow you to. Or you could just like itself. hang an ankle weight from the steering wheel. I've seen that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that's, that's actually a really good point. As soon as you actually have a, a case of someone yeah. dying. Yeah. We, we can. Every one of us is slowly dying of uh, of uh, advertisement of Facebook. Nobody cares. But when you have uh, something something that is really prominent, I think that's a, that triggers regulation. And I fully expect that um, if something happens, that would happen. And otherwise, it will be like you know, as a function of the countries and acceptance of these um, capital. I mean, government, uh, corporate government uh, policies. Yeah. Cool. So, so did you want to, I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground that I didn't expect to cover. Uh, it's gone, uh, I think a lot differently than our initial conversation did, which, um, is, is really good in some ways, but really bad in other ways. Cause that, that other conversation was a lot of fun, but, um, did you want to hit that third, um, sure. Point? Sure. Or, let's hit it. Let's hit it quickly. And then please like interject if you have questions or you want to bring up those old topics, go for it. Um, yeah, so sensory abundance was the third topic. So um, this idea that abundance is our future, this is a famous TED talk by uh, uh, this guy named Diamandis. Uh, first name's escaping me. He's a, a futurist and uh, kind of a believer in the singularity. And he talks about how, um, you know, everything's becoming more abundant in the future and um, the future is bright. Um, and playing with that idea, you know, you could look at ha HD haptics, high high very, very high quality haptics is enabling this kind of sensory abundance. Um, today, sensation is scarce. And um, I would contend that the, the pursuit of certain sensations drives a lot of human behavior, um, eco economics, uh, all kinds of, you know, even wars, right? Um, and that, you know, people get into conflict over finding certain sexual partners or wanting to be able to afford they want money, but what is the money for? The money is to buy good food, to have um, a house that is, you know, has sensory qualities to it that this person is craving or pursuing. Um, and so if you had HD haptics, some of those drivers go away because now you have the ability to access those sensations pretty much for, for free or for almost free. Um, and, you know, you, you don't have to go out and um, kind of cause conflict to try to get the sensations. Um, and so that that was the idea is that like you know there's like an optimism here that um as sens sensations become more abundant you know maybe human conflict is reduced uh maybe there's new opportunities f to expand human happiness um on the flip side of that um because it, as is my way lately i always have to look at pessimistic side too uh on the flip side um sensory abundance actually means if if the virtual sensations are not the same quality as the physical sensations or the or the actual sensations from which they're that, that they're modeling if something's missing there um then that that actually turns out to be kind of bad because that means that there's going to be enormous economic pressure to never have the the actual or physical sensations um it will just become untenable you know for example like if um if if uh, virtual reality gets good enough that you can pretty much feel like you traveled. You can pretty much feel like you had a vacation to the extent that like it satisfies your need to recharge and to get back to work afterwards. Um, but but uh, you know, actual travel is is a thousand times or a million times more expensive, but it's actually way better. Most people or pretty much all people will never have the opportunity to do that. Um, so it could be kind of a double-edged sword, but that's the concept. I hope I explained that well. 
maybe I didn't. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm sort of thinking maybe I have like a more a more cynical read on on consumption, but it seems to me like the function of consumption is not necessarily like the pursuit of sensations, but actually like social stratification, right? Like a lot of what we're doing, a lot of our consumption is actually driven by the need to like conspicuously consume to mark ourselves off from each other in a, uh, you know, in a, a, a classless, but still class society, right? A society where, um, where social stratification is not, necessarily hard-coded, but soft-coded, and the way that people stratify is through conspicuous consumption, right? So it is it is scarcity that makes certain forms of consumption desirable rather than the experience itself. And again, like that's, that might be might too be simple to read, but I think yeah. that holds up with our, you know, with our history of consumption, right? Like the reason I want to go out for a nice dinner is uh, maybe because I enjoy the dinner, but also because telling people that I went out for a nice dinner signals my class position. Um, and, and, you know, that used to be true for like a smaller percentage of society, sort of increasingly in the U.S., at least like throughout the 20th century, became increasingly true for a larger percentage of society, right? That consumption defines your cultural position um, rather than production. Um, so I guess I sort of think that like it's hard to if you move toward like that virtualization of consumption, if you move toward this mod model of abundance, then yeah, I think you're still going to have that as long as it's couched in like this capitalist logic. It's still going to have that sign function, right? It's still going to have that indexicality um, where the consumption index is something about my class position um, rather than like just my desire for like a pure sensorial um, experience. I don't know if that yeah if, if that sort of veers yeah. away from the the main point that you were driving at, but that's my sort of read on it. I want to give a take here. So I think at a certain point we might have a good, a great haptics, uh, uh, ubiquitous or whatever, but I think that there will be always an extremely perceivable gap between a real experience of doing bungee jumping and a simulated experience one, that things will be inertia, which that's, that, that, can, that doesn't go away your weight and these things that you can experience like horse riding or snowboarding or skiing and what whatnot. Um, there's really a components there that can't go away. That is really how the physics works and haptics. Um, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, but 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 that's the perfect example. So let's say you had virtual bungee jumping, and it was you didn't have the inertia, but you had temperature, airflow. You know, you had enough of it that people start asking, or maybe regulators, or maybe it just becomes economically infeasible to run a bungee jumping service. You're just like, there's no point. Like, nobody's going to do it. People are, they're happy enough with 40% of the experience that they're just but never going to go I really think the other it. way around, completely the other way around, I think the accessibility of the experience in this digital manner will drive, it's a marketing activity that will drive much more people to get the real experience. Mm -hmm. And the example is traveling. Mm -hmm. Traveling exploded also because the accessibility of the information and the things on the other side of the world mm. with internet. So the people could actually realize that they wanted to see this place. So they were actually taking the plane and going to see this place. This is driving the tourist. Even if like it's infinite, like a thousand times more expensive than just stay at home and read a book or watch, watch a movie. So I think it would be the other way around. I think we would have a, a marketing effect on the sensorial experiences that will explode because people could start to slightly experience in them and then say, oh, this is interesting. I want to go go full in. So I, I believe in a kind of a contrary, actually. I don't know. That's just my thought. I would be sort of interested that the parallel, I think that this might be helpful here. And this is, there's probably other parallels that we could make, but because this has such a strong haptic component to it, I'm thinking of something like climbing gyms, right? which give you like the like some of the physicality of climbing in a very sanitized way um, give you the exercise but but don't put you like up you know eight thousand feet on a mountain um, don't put you in in physical in physical harm and i'm sort of i'd be curious i have no idea if there what the relationship between uh people who go to climbing gyms uh and people who actually climb uh you know rocks is right like, i'm a climber I, right, I can okay. tell you this. Yeah, I'm a climber. I can tell you this. So there's a pyramid stuff 
really it's a pyramid scheme and uh, more you increase the base, more you increase the number of people in mountains. It's actually skyrocketed the number of people who climbs in the mountain. So you have this like population population level that you have a, like a kind of good enough experiences. And that is basically an entry level of, okay, let's go to the mountains because I feel comfortable of doing stuff and I want to do the real thing. There is mm-hmm. still these things like I want the real thing. I want the yeah. real experience. Because the, I mean, it, it seems like my, my sort of hit on it as someone who hasn't done much of either, but, but done a little bit. Um, I mean, the, uh, the actual climbing is so, sen- so much sensorially richer, right, than the gym experience. Um, I mean, just everything that you can't capture, all the, the everything, there's so much that's irreproducible about that experience. Um, but at the same time, like, good enough if I just want to, like, pop down the street and, like, get some exercise and train myself a little bit, right? So it seems like a, a very, it seems to me like it would be a very symbiotic relationship where the, um, the sort of primary experience is left intact because there's so much that's not reproducible. Um, and I think I think we could have some really nice parallels with like with what VR would look like and what, with what you know with what haptic experiences would look like because yeah there's just so much that that would the, the gap is still would still be so huge um, with the, a lot of the virtual experiences I think that Dave is talking about in this model of sensory abundance. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's again it's the logic of the tackle learning. If you assume that it's really really much better than a climbing gym, like really really much better. Um, and it gets you a, a percentage. I, I just wonder if there's a threshold after which people stop trying to go out into the mountains or they're just restricted from it. Look, it's good enough. We're destroying these rocks, right? We have we we can't have humans climbing around all these rocks. They're like these like public parks and stuff. So no more. Everybody just I gets think, their virtual. I think that is an example, which yeah. is a str- uh, streaming and, and movies, right? Mm-hmm. There you go. Classic yeah. movies, it's going down because the streaming is good enough at home. And the way that to differentiate the stuff is with haptics, with D-Box and uh, 4DX, that is quite cool, with 3D, with all these kind of big experiences that all together validates your willingness to pay plus the willingness to move yourself. Otherwise, that's exactly That's a great example, right? Like cinema is such a thing. It's such a wonderful place with the smells and the, the high quality visuals you're watching, you know. Um, the best possible visual technology. You have all this beautiful sound. You're there with your friends, and it's like uh, not worth it. You know, <laughs> like the inconvenience of pursuing that is no longer worth it when you can just watch it at home. And there was something lost there that of value. You know, so. Well, we I mean we do have a lot of um, historical precedents for this as well, right? Like even you know even pre cinematic where. Uh, media technologies or representational technologies were considered like a good enough substitute if you couldn't travel to have the actual experience, right? So mm-hmm. and this is not necessary. I think this is why I think that cultural thing is so important here because the standards for like what's considered good enough are always relative rather than absolute, absolute right? It's never a question of like, can I, the goal is a one-to-one copy. How close does this get me to a one-to-one copy? Um, as, a, as an absolute standard, it's always well, what's available at the time um, what's good enough, like a, a panorama um, painting, for instance, as a as a successful um, replacement for like the experience of traveling and getting like a panorama view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always a sort of balancing act. And then it goes back to that stratification. Did you have the actual experience? Mm-hmm. Were you wealthy enough to travel and get the actual panorama? Or like, did you just have to settle for like the, you know, the panoramic painting Um the sort of the the um, not quite as good copy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we do this all the time with cultural products, right? Like, did you go out to eat at a really nice um, sushi restaurant, or did you get like the sort of like not very good stuff from the grocery store, right? And like one is sensorially maybe richer than the other, but it also allows you access to a particular cultural vocabulary that allows you to differentiate yourself from someone else, mm-hmm. right? So stratification through through consumption. And again, I don't think it's, I think you're right. Like it'll, re, it, those same tensions, those same logics will reemerge, right? So I don't, that's why I'm suspicious of like that notion that uh, that this is a question of scarcity at the at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. 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 And it's also interesting to have this conversation. I was thinking about this when I was, when I was reading your, um, your paper initially. It's also interesting to have this conversation like amidst a supply chain crisis, Right, like in the middle of a supply chain crisis, um, when like questions of abundance 
uh, or or assumptions of abundance, assumptions of ease of access to goods and services, have uh, which were I think relatively stable um, for a while, just sort of uh, not across the board. Um, but that question of like being able to go to the store and find stuff on the shelf uh, just seemed like a pretty constant expectation um, for for a lot of us. Um, and I think it's interesting to have this to have this conversation with when that there's been this sort of anti-environmental thing that happened um, in the sense that an environment is just something you're conditioned to live in uh, where that environment has gotten disrupted, right? Like mm -hmm. that state is of expectation, that state of normalcy has gotten disrupted. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, this is was a really fun conversation, frankly. It's, uh, it turned out less, uh, less, uh, less uh, divisive than expected, but I think more constructive in some way or form. And, I'm actually really happy to have done this via video so that it's easier to read each other's facial expressions. So that's that's pretty cool. It's all we'll about sensory bandwidth. We, yeah, it's true. We need to put uh, we need the haptics so we can poke people. Look at me. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think that's uh, that's actually a pretty good experiment that we run here. And I think some of the club will start to do it in, uh, in this form. If we have, uh, like, let's say, two people in the, that uh, have a let's say, different views and we want to stimulate conversation. Um, that, that Thank you very much to be, in French we say cobaye, to be the, 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 the test bench for this. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so I would like to thank uh, Dave and David for being here to the Haptics Club 14. So um, you will be able to find the uh, recording of this event uh, on the all major platforms for um, podcast, hopefully, YouTube, if our two speakers uh, will uh, agree on that. And uh, don't don't forget to subscribe on our uh, Twitter and LinkedIn page to follow the Haptics Club. Shortly, we will have t-shirts, so our speakers will uh, will need to purchase t-shirts. That's important to, su <laughs> to support <laughs> this money-losing venture, which is called Haptics Club. And uh, I wish you all a fantastic evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.